It is Friday, July 9th, 2021, and this is episode 676 of the show. We have two segments on this episode. One is a, uh, well, you know, interestingly enough, it's a, they're both journalists or come from a world of journalism and writing, and um, neither one is a filmmaker, which is, uh, you know, just a rare instance. But both of these writers have a way into film. And the first one I'm going to play here is Deneen Brown, who was on a few weeks ago. On the, I, I talked to her for a documentary she was involved with called Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. So this premiered the weekend of Juneteenth a couple weekends ago. And I had her on the YouTube show, and I did not post this on the podcast yet. So I decided I would do that, even though it might be a little dated. I think you can still see Rise Again on the uh, National Geographic channel or on their website, perhaps streaming. Uh, I'm sure you can find this film uh, without too much of a problem. Anyway, it's called Rise Again, Tulsa in the Red Summer. We're going to have, and, and Deneen is uh, a, a journalist. She works, has been writing for the Washington Post for a long time. She was terrific. So we're going to play that conversation. And then after that, we're going to talk to. Somebody I've been wanting to talk to for ages. His name is Victor Navasky. He was at The Nation, at the magazine The Nation, as an editor, then as a publisher for years and years. He's a publisher emeritus in his retirement. He's uh, up there. You know, he's... uh, But he wrote the seminal book on the Hollywood blacklist. It's called Naming Names. And since I've read the book, I wanted to bring Victor on and talk to him. And I had the opportunity the other day to have a conversation about him and his life and his work and and that book. So I hope you'll stick around for that. But first up here, uh, this is Deneen L. Brown. Rise Again follows Deneen as she chronicles the discovery of a mass grave in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and investigates the reign of racial terror and and a legacy of violence that swept across the United States in the early 20th century. Let's talk to Deneen Brown right here on Film Wax Radio. They got word. That trouble was coming. The white folks are killing the color. Barbaric violence was committed against black people across this country. Kerosene was dropped from an airplane. Why did nobody ever teach us this? Because they didn't want you to know. When it was an opportunity to wipe out a community, they took it. I cannot imagine that there are mass graves somewhere in our community and we didn't try to find them. They're buried somewhere, and the question is where? It's nice to meet your acquaintance. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. First of all, Don Porter is one of the great filmmakers and and just a terrific person, and I watch everything she makes. And so I was... I. And and when I was asking for her, I said, you know, I'd like to talk to you too if you're available because you're na- helping us navigate. You're navigating through the the story, so so you're you're terrific. It's an important story. I've done. I've kind of believe it or not, I've covered it. There've been a few different stories or films told about the Tulsa tragedy, and now that we're actually at the anniversary, shall we call it? <laughs> Um, I'm glad this one will be seen by lots of people on National Geographic channel. Yes, yeah. Sunny, so, you're so we learned from the beginning, uh, uh, Deneen, that you are you're a reporter, you're a journalist, you work for the Washington Post. Yeah. Okay, and you were following the story. I'll let I should really let you tell it, but I kind of wanted also let you know that I saw. <laughs> was very invested in this story which is called rise again tulsa in the red summer but you you typically follow try to bring present stories about the african-american stories that might be otherwise 
ignored or you know you're right these are on quotes okay so and then you were following this late uh not long ago the story of these what uh about this area in tulsa where they were believed were uh, was a mass grave yeah and that's where we start off it's a very powerful beginning what, what made you want to tell this particular story was it the encroaching anniversary or were you already very very tied to the story way before that or what was the Okay, so I have been a writer at the Washington Post for more than 35 years. And about six years ago, my editor, Linda Robinson, uh, launched a blog within the Washington Post. It's called Retropolis, like Metropolis, but with an R. Okay. There's a team of reporters, writers, who are assigned to essentially watch the news And when something happens in the news, we dive back in history and research history on deadline and then come back with a narrative. So that was my my job for the last six years. So the way I got started working on the Tulsa race massacre story is in 2018. Actually, I came here to Tulsa to visit my dad. My father lives in Tulsa. I am from Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma. I have relatives all around here. My great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. My grandmother was born in Boley, which is an all-Black town about 60 miles from Tulsa. Uh, It's famous for its rodeo. So my people are from Oklahoma. So this story really starts with a visit to my dad. and, And I say to my dad, Um, Daddy, let's go have lunch on Black Wall Street. And so we go to the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is uh, a center that um, captures the history of this massacre. And we visit there and then we go have lunch on Black Wall Street at a little soul food cafe called Wanda Jays. And I look around and I notice that there's a minor league baseball stadium. There's a luxury apartment complex and sorry, a yoga studio. And I say to myself, my goodness, Black Wall Street, the site of one of the most horrible racial massacres in U.S. history is being gentrified. So I fly back to D.C., talk to my editor, and I tell her about this trip. And um, she says, that's a great story. Washington Post editors send me back here. And that's when I start reporting on the ground. In, in August of, of 2018, I come here and talking to the Black activists who've been crying out for justice for this massacre for nearly 100 years. I interview Councilwoman Vanessa Hull Harper, her campaign manager, Christy Williams. They take me to different sites in Greenwood to explain the massacre. At one point, they make me get out of the car, and I have to walk with my hands up down the street, you've seen the famous photos of the Black men marching at gunpoint to internment camps after the massacre. They made me walk with my hands up like this. And I say, there's a certain point when you feel the story, it hits you in your heart, in your core. And that's when I felt it. Because as you and your listeners may know, that after this massacre, (laughs) in which more than 300 Black people were killed, those who survived the massacre and who were still in Greenwood on June 1st, 1921, were rounded up and marched to what they called internment camps. So I felt the story. They also, uh, Christy Williams and Vanessa Harper, took me to Oakland Cemetery, where they said that a commission in 1998 found, uh, with ground-penetrating radar, found anomalies beneath the ground that were consistent with mass graves, but the city closed that investigation and never dug. So what happens next, my story lands on the front page of the Washington Post in September <laughs> yes. 2018. Um, there's a community meeting a day or two afterwards, and the current mayor, G.T. Bynum, is explaining that he wants he has plans for development in North Tulsa, and that's when uh, Pastor Reverend Turner, who's pastor of Vernon AME Church, he holds my story up. He told me he held my story up. 
And he said to the mayor, you wouldn't have this land to develop had there not been a massacre. What are you going to do about it? And that's when the mayor announces that he's going to reopen the search for mass graves. So the activists here say that that story, national story, was a catalyst for the mayor reopening the search for mass graves. Thank you for recapping that trajectory. A number of things. And uh, one thing is, is the second part of the crime or third or fourth part is the squelching of the story. Okay. It's not unique. The erasing of this story is part of this part of the film story. I mean, at least it's a byproduct of it. That's as big a crime to me that it's not in the history books. It hasn't historically been taught in our history books or Okay, so there's that. And and then also, it seems even very recently, you know, before this current mayor, that the story was continuing when they closed that case. That's yet another example of how they keep trying to erase this story, which is, does nobody a service? And I think anybody watches the movie, do regard, regardless of your uh, creek or color, whatever, race, uh, it, you're going to realize, or at least I hope so, that there's no benefit to erasing any part of our story. I think we have, that's where we have to get to understanding. But I wanted to know, and um, we'll come back to all that, but I wanted to know also, since you brought it up early on, since you grew up in Oklahoma, sounds like relatively close, you, your dad was in Tulsa. How much was this story told in your childhood and in your school and in your experience as a kid? It, it wasn't really. I mean, you hear... Well, my dad talks about um, studying geography in Oklahoma and Oklahoma history and never learning about it. It wasn't in textbooks. There was a conspiracy of silence, a deliberate cover-up by civic officials and city officials to uh, make this story of this massacre go away in Tulsa. They called it uh, a quote-unquote embarrassment because they they were trying to build Tulsa as an oil capital of the world. And they Mm. literally tried to erase the massacre from history. Wasn't in textbooks, wasn't taught in schools. It wasn't really um, white people stopped talking about it even after they they took photographs and postcards standing over the bodies of black people. They eventually stopped talking about it. Black people would whisper about it only um, because, you know, there was concern that it might happen again. So even in in families, it was just whispered about. So I was talking to my aunt yesterday about my great-grandmother who lived in Tulsa. And my aunt was saying that she would only hear bits and pieces of it um, when adults were like in the kitchen. You could hear bits and pieces of the conversation about the massacre. And so it really wasn't talked about with children. Um, So my family, I'm still learning, literally learning about what my family knew, Um, learning that, you know, what my family's connections are to Tulsa. Um, I do know that after the, during the massacre, many black people fled Greenwood for the surrounding black towns. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's, that's where my, my, again, that's where my grandmother was born in Bowley, Oklahoma. Um, growing up, I was uh, just a really curious child, a student of history. I'm always trying to figure out, well, what was left out of the textbooks? This doesn't make sense. Mrs. Jones, <laughs> Mrs. Jones, <laughs> Mrs. Jones. And Mrs. Jones was so irritated with me because I was asking questions about, what was between the spaces in the mm-hmm. textbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people are just like kept to this one period, one little paragraph. And I'm like, well, there's something missing, Mrs. Jones. And uh, so I actually, as a child, started trying to read as much as I could about Black history outside of, of uh, what I was being taught in school. And that's kind of where my curiosity is launched about these race massacres and, and Black history. And probably, I'm going to guess, contributed to your career, deciding on a career, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it was always in the recesses of my mind. It was a buried story. Um, 
when I uh, became a journalist? I mean, it's just one of those questions that resides in the back of your mind. And so, again, when I, uh, you know, I've been at the Washington Post for 35 years. Ben Bradley actually hired me. Wow. Uh, I, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, a pretty so big deal. It is. Ben Bradley, of course, uh, published the Pentagon Papers and, right? Yeah, he was the executive was Kat, editor of the Washington was, Post. Was it Catherine? Catherine Graham was the publisher. She was there. Wow. She was there at the Washington Post. Wow. You, you look like a kid. I don't believe you. <laughs> Sorry. Believe <laughs> so, um, You've already uh, forgiven me for my tardiness, so I don't, but I, I, I'll keep complimenting. Yeah, well, thank you. So, yeah, I graduate. I land in the Washington Post very, very young, and the the legendary reporters and editors are still there. Bob Woodward is still it's there. Amazing, yeah. And um, that summer, at the end of the summer, Ben Bradley, I, I'm called into his office and he hires me. So um, over the course of my career, I've covered police, education, courts, education. <laughs> I've covered it all, homicides, um, I was a foreign correspondent for the Post. I was the Canada bureau chief where I wrote about um, climate change. And I did a lot of work in the Arctic, the Canadian Arctic, writing about climate change. One of my first assignments up up there was uh, I traveled on a (laughs) Coast Guard icebreaker through the Northwest Passage to document um, the thinning of sea ice. You're the one who should be doing a podcast. Why am I wasting my time here? Or everybody else's, I should say, because... You have, it sounds like you're the one with the stories. You should be doing this podcast. No, I'm happy to be interviewed. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm just a writer and a storyteller. And I'm happy to be working on this project, Red Summer, Tulsa. Um, Well, I wonder if it's getting, uh, if it doesn't ironically uh, get more attention, the centennial, because of our last five years of post-racial life here in this country right we're post-racial so but i say that with uh, ironically but the last four or five years have shown us we're very much uh not the case it the fact obviously with back black lives matter and um so many endless number of police shootings etc we know well this that that things are as heightened as as they've ever been and I wonder if it's always the case, like uh, this case of the Tulsa massacre, this was during Jim Crow, correct? So one thing I think I learned late in life, again, maybe because of limitations of my own education, was that you'd think that the most dangerous time was during Reconstruction, perhaps. Like now slaves are now free people, and you would have thought that would have been a very, very dangerous period of time. But it seems like, no, it was once they actually had rights, political, you know, like legal rights uh, and started to gain some power in their own uh, over themselves. And in the case of Tulsa, cr- uh, created their own economy that was hugely successful. That's why they called it Black Wall Street. And that became the threat. And I find like we're kind of back there again with the country in this Trump era where all of a sudden we're a minority majority and it's a big threat to whites. Is it their parallel here or is it my imagination? Uh, it's not your imagination. There is a parallel. So immediately after the civil war, while Lincoln was alive, he sent federal troops into the South to protect the mm. newly freed black people. Okay. So after his assassination, um, President Andrew Johnson removed those troops, and that's when it became pretty more dangerous for Black people. Okay. There was um, also, they also decided not to uh, try and punish many of the Confederate yes, military leadership, so, right, it, yes. or troops in order to quell yes. right? Okay. So after uh, Johnson comes into office, he resents a lot of the measures that Lincoln had put in place to protect Black people. And also, you know, you've heard of 40 acres and a meal. Those were reparations, right. uh, the original kind of reparations for formerly enslaved Black people. When Johnson comes into office, he takes away 
that protection he also takes away that land. And um, so what happens during, re also what's happening during reconstruction is there's a rise in economic uh, power among formerly enslaved black people, many of them, for example, coming to Oklahoma and establishing black towns. Uh, there's a, uh, an increase in, in the voting of black men. You have black men all over the country elected to local, state, and even uh, federal offices um, when you know, black men received the, the right to vote. Some people don't know there was a black senator, from, a Republican black <laughs> senator from Mississippi uh, elected to the U.S. Uh, Senate. And there were black men elect, elected to the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives. And Well, Dawn Porter so, has a lot more documentaries to make, clearly. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. what happens with that rise in economic power and rise in, in voting power, there comes this backlash boom, from um, white people. And that's when you start seeing the Jim Crow laws the really fierce segregation laws. You see a second resurgence of the Klan um, trying to defeat Black people, really tr trying to exterminate their economic power and actually exterminate them. So you see this in Red Summer. Red Summer, um, I argue, begins in 1917 in East St. Louis when um, white, white mobs angry about Black men taking jobs um, began pulling Black people off of streetcars, killing them on the street. It was a horrific event in 1917. And then the Red Summer begins in 1919. That's when you see massacres in Washington, D.C., Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Chicago, Illinois. One of the worst is Elaine, Arkansas, which you'll see in this film. You'll see me traveling to Elaine and interviewing descendants of massacre victims. And then uh, that leads, Red Summer sets the stage for Tulsa, the massacre in Tulsa. So this, it was a terrific, horrific reign of terror against Black people and uh, as many as 25 cities uh, during this period of Red Summer saw violence, racial terror violence, uh, white mobs attacking Black people during this period. So this, as you said, this film comes at a time when um, the country is going through its, another cycle of violence against Black people. The film comes at a time when protesters have poured into the streets, you know, after the killing of George Floyd, demanding justice, demanding an end to police brutality. Protesters, um, anti-racism protesters marching through the streets of cities across the country and across the world. Um, so I hope, I mean, this film helps prompt a conversation about that history and then connecting the dots to, right. to provide a context and yeah. an understanding for what's happening now. Right. Perfectly put. And, you know, I mean that, look, don't rest on your laurels. We've got a long way to go. We have to have some very tough conversations. And I think we have to grapple with reparations as on a real level you know whatever that looks like but uh again the name of the documentary is called rise again tulsa and the red summer it's going to be on national geographic channel marking the 100th anniversary right and then uh I'll, I'll have the dates and the links and everything put up there so it's coming out thank uh, you so thank you rise again red summer is going to be released on june 18th, june 18th on nat geo tv right. and june 19th on hulu hulu so right. it's kind of come at the same time as as the uh, as, as the Juneteenth celebrations. Juneteenth. Yeah, Juneteenth is celebrated in black communities all over the world. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I just wanted to let you know that um, they they changed the release date, so it's going to be June eighteenth on National Geographic and on the same day on Hulu. Oh, okay, that is new. Okay, thank you for that, Erica. So. so there you I'll go. It's time for, we can rephrase it. We'll just say it'll be available. It'll be streaming on Hulu for Hulu subscribers uh, starting the 18th as well in time for Juneteenth, which is the next day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, how did you, by the way, and I, I want to respect your time. I know you probably have things going on, but how did you and Dawn end up work collaborating, let's say? 
Um, so I um, worked on a magazine piece for National Geographic when Trump was coming to Tulsa. Uh, I basically pitched a piece saying, you know, all the reporters all over the world, they're going to start with the arrest of Dick Rowland at the courthouse to talk about what, what sparked the massacre in Tulsa to set the stage for Trump's visit. So I, I was telling my editor, well, it, we should really explore Red Summer because mm -hmm. Red Summer sets the stage for Tulsa. So I actually wrote a magazine piece in National Geographic about Red Summer setting the stage for Tulsa. Um, and when I, National Geographic was considering working on a, creating a film about uh, the Tulsa race massacre and, and its anniversary, they reached out to Don Porter as the director. She came on board. And originally, I was going to be a consultant behind the scenes. And um, Don Porter decided to kind of follow me and follow my reporting. Wisely. All right. Well, I, you know, I hope um, this was not an, a, a thoroughly dissatisfying experience doing this, this uh, having a conversation. I, I enjoyed it. Oh, very this is a great conversation. Oh, you have some really wonderful questions. And it's just been an honor to talk about the project and really try to explain for the viewers and the listeners, you know, this piece of history that is so important. It's not just Black history, it's American history. Exactly. We all should know about it. All right, let's just take it intellectually. If you ignoring history certainly hasn't gotten us anywhere, that's been proven. So let's just own it. Let's just uh, talk about it and own it. And we'll all benefit from it. That's what all these, you know, I think uh, really, I'm going to say anxious and uh, angry people, scared people don't, uh, uh, I mean, you know, white people, but uh, the ones that are having the real problem, I think they'll, it's, it's just, they have to learn that it's nothing, uh, but it'll benefit everybody. There's no threat here. Just. Absolutely. Know, yeah. Just, Coming to yeah. terms with this history that yeah. they tried to whitewash, but, you know, as I say, the truth, the truth will break through the ground. The truth will right. unleash itself. You can't and, cover And that. we see that with the, the mass graves that are being discovered. Exactly. So, so anyway, thank you. And we'll encourage people to see the documentary. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And follow you on Twitter. I'm assuming you're on Twitter because you're a journalist. I am on Twitter. Janine Brown. Janine L. Brown. Okay. I, yeah, I tweet my stories and I, I tweet, uh, for example, I tweeted the front page of the Oklahoma Eagle last night, but I, I tweet as I go about my reporting. Yeah, I guess it's, 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 uh, it's now become part of the, the job as well as maybe you get some pleasure out of it, but... <laughs> right you kind of have to do that i suppose yeah yeah have to, yeah have to engage as much as possible Denine brown thank you very much really appreciate it thank you it's great to be here thank you so much anytime and, uh, hopefully great conversation thank you have a great day you too it's great bye -bye. to see you bye-bye i cannot imagine that there are mass graves somewhere in our community and we didn't try to find them they're buried somewhere, and the question is where. We have encountered human remains. It was like they had found people who had been disappeared by history. The earth had unleashed the truth. We view this as a murder investigation. I'm gonna raise my voice. Some people say that city officials orchestrated a cover-up. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a chapter in a book. It happened to real people. They burned the whole town down. But it will rise again. Victor Navasky has served as editor, publisher, and now publisher emeritus of The Nation, which he joined in 1978. He is also the George Delacorte Professor of Magazine Journalism at the Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, where he directs the Delacorte Center of Magazines and chairs the Columbia Journalism Review. In the 1970s, he served as an editor on the New York Times Magazine, 
Um, in the 1960s, he was founding editor and publisher of Monocle, a leisurely quarterly of political satire. That means it actually came out just twice a year. His books include Kennedy Justice Naming Names, which won a National Book Award, The Experts Speak, The Definitive Guide to Authoritative Misinformation, and also Mission Accomplished, or How We Won the War in Iraq. I'm really thrilled. Uh, I, I actually have gotten to know him a little bit through different circles, connections, and um, actually even invite, uh, last summer got to go to uh, his home in the Berkshires and spend some time with him. This was not from that conversation last year. This I just did this over Zoom with, with Victor the other day, what you're going to hear now. So we're going to talk about his, his life and career as a progressive and as a journalist, and of course, the author of Naming Names, which for anybody interested in the Hollywood blacklist, yet this is the, where you start. This is the Bible on that subject, uh, and you should read it. It's a great read. Here it is, my conversation with Victor Navasky here on Film Wax Radio. Oh, the streets are cracked, and there's glass everywhere. How was your birthday Monday? How was your birthday, Victor? Well, uh, I don't know how 89th birthdays are supposed to be, but my whole family was here, and that was great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, you have you had no experience with 89th birthdays. Now you do. <laughs> now I do, yes. Well, that's nice that everybody came together. I'm glad to hear it. And I was in contact with our mutual friend, Michael Miracle. Yes. I was letting him know that I was going to have some time with you. So he definitely, he was anxious and looking forward to seeing the results. I just hope and pray I can do, do it justice, you know? Do what justice? Just have a conversation, get a little bit of your experience. Maybe you can share some of your life because I'm also curious, even though I do this film show, and I think, you know, a lot of it's film history. And of course, the Hollywood Blacklist is, for me, an enormous thing. And, you know, you wrote the Bible, so... So I wanted to, of course, go over that. and But I also wanted to just to get a little bit sure. of your history because, you know, you've lived through so much, you know. Okay, so my history is I was born in 1932 and grew up in New York City and ended up at age 11 going to the Little Red Schoolhouse. And the Little Red Schoolhouse, a lot of the parents had been involved in left-wing stuff and they knew what communism was, and I didn't. I had come from the Rudolf Steiner school where they knew what the spirit was, but they didn't right. know what communism yeah. was. And so at Little Red, I had... What, a, what, what, what age were you when you got to the Little Red schoolhouse? 11. You were 11. So you had been in the Waldorf or the uh, Steiner schools? Pardon me? You were at the Waldorf or Steiner schools before that? The Rudolf Steiner school in New York. On the Upper East Side? On on the, on the east side, it started on the west side. Oh, okay. Started there and it moved to the east side, and I went there until I was ten. And at eleven, I switched to Little Red. My sister graduated from the Steiner School and went to the Julia Richmond High School. Why My, did they switch you, though? Pardon me. Why did they change you over to this? Because my sister graduated and. Uh, and I was, and she had been in the school with me, and I, and I was a friend of a boy on my block. Went to Little Red. I used to play uh, games with him, and used to play ball with him. And I ended up applying to and going to Little Red Schoolhouse. At Little Red, my teachers included, among others a woman named Blanche Schindelman who taught biology and um, Harold Kirshner who, was, who taught history. And Harold was an old-fashioned Marxist and he taught us history 
according to Karl Marx, although he didn't put it that way, but that's what we learned about him. And, um, and, and that's where I was exposed to left-wing politics. And a lot of my, my friends I kept in touch with afterwards, Phil Green, who became a professor at Smith College and other places, still writes, he's in New York and uh, is very thoughtful uh, radical political scientist and uh, the, other, the other yeah go ahead yeah and the other kids in my class were again March Avery the daughter of Milton Avery they were sophisticated culturally and politically in a way that I hadn't been at all when did you become aware of the like the progressive politics like how young were you when you started catching on it this was a, you know, the, the, the uh, culture there was what it was, progressive. Well, I guess I, when I was uh, about 13 or 14 years old, I began to understand what was going on. And then I, I graduated from there and went to Swarthmore College. And uh, at Swarthmore, again, uh, I, I was very attracted to the cultural life of the left, which meant going to the woods to sing folk songs, but also be part of a conversation that was uh, consisted of liberal and leftist views and people. Ideology. Yeah, and uh, and my roommates were. I roomed with uh, first of all. Manuel Fernandez, Federico E. Garcia Lorca Montesinos, who was the nephew of Garcia Lorca and I and his father had been the mayor of Spain uh, a mayor in Spain under the who was a socialist and then I roomed with Phil Landek and Mark Merson when Manolo went back to Spain and uh, and again they had gone to Little Red so I had this uh, combination of political and cultural exposure which which informed the way I saw the world. When I graduated from EI, I, I volunteered to go in the army, uh, the end of, of the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would have the GI Bill and I ended up go, being sent to Alaska and editing a military newspaper up there going to the Democratic Convention when I got out of the Army and then going to the Yale Law School. When you were up in Alaska, were, was that your first opportunity? It was a military base? It was a military base outside of Anchorage, yes. Right, or, and it, it was your, uh, was that your first experience with journalism? Or had you already been doing that in Swarthmore? And I was the editor of the paper at Swarthmore, and the Swarthmore Phoenix co-editor. And uh, okay. so I had exposure to journalism. And, and of course, the parents of a, of a fair number of my friends were blacklisted. And uh, I uh, went to Alaska, went to the Democratic Convention when I got out of the Army in 56. And uh, I... I went to the Yale Law School. And when I got out of the Yale Law School, I went to work for Soapy Williams, who was the governor of Michigan at the time, uh, a sort of a leftist type governor mm -hmm. um, who was a, a, a kind of all-American boy. And, uh, uh, and, and as Soapy's assistant and speechwriter, I got to meet Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and a whole bunch of fancy Democrats. And uh, uh, when when that was over, when I was in the Yale Law School, I started my own magazine. It was called Monocle. Is that called, a storm? And excuse yes. me. We have a terrible storm. Coming. We have a oh terrible storm coming here. We, we called ourselves a leisurely quarterly of political satire. That meant we came out twice a year. And uh, <laughs> I like that joke. Yes. 
And, uh, you saw it on your website. So there we are. Uh, and, uh, and then I eventually, I went to work for the New York Times Magazine as an editor and a writer. I started freelancing and I freelanced for them and they hired me as an editor. And I worked there for a few years and then left to write naming names and uh, and then ended up going to the nation. Uh, ended up actually uh, with Ramsey Clark. Ramsey, I had written the profile of Ramsey Clark and Ramsey invited me to be his campaign manager when he ran for the Senate in New York. So I was his campaign, mis I called myself his campaign mismanager. <laughs> I was his campaign manager. Okay. And during that campaign that I met young, Hamil that young Hamilton Fish, who was just out of Harvard, who is the grandson of the reactionary conservative Hamilton Fish. And he was a great fundraiser and everyone would take his calls because he was working for Ramsey Clark and what's Hamilton Fish doing calling, asking for money for Ramsey and Ramsey was way ahead of his time, wasn't taking more than a hundred bucks for anyone and from anyone. And after the campaign was over, we won the primary and then lost the general to Jack Javits, who was the number one vote getter, Republican vote getter in the country. After that, the nation uh, came up for sale and I recruited him to be my partner. And we had to raise money from a group of people and we raised the money to acquire the nation. And you became the publisher. Ham became the publisher. I was the editor. And then oh. eventually, eventually I became the editor and publisher. And, uh, and that was my life for the next couple of decades. And I re recruited Katrina Vandy. We started an intern program that included, among others, Katrina Van and Huvel. And when I left, I made her my successor. And that's the short of it. And here we are. I went to the Columbia Journalism Review and taught at Columbia, became the chairman of the Columbia Journalism Review. And during all this period, I had my own politics, which I did not confuse with the journalism at CJR, but it was clear that's where I was as the nation symbolized. So, Didn't, um, was it Barbara Koppel that uh, directed it, made a, a documentary a few years ago on the nation? Or You know, I should remember yes. that, but yes. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. <laughs> My wife said yes. Yeah, yes. I heard her. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because uh, she's, I'm friendly with her, and I, I remember that it highlighted, of course, the woman that's, Ended up being the editor, right? She she started as an intern there, I think. Uh, but and I'm forgetting her name now, which is terrible. But. Katrina Van and you will That's who it was. An intern and then and okay. that's who you were describing. Sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, but when did you know? Uh, for instance, when in the process did you decide that that this was going to be your career? <laughs> was it in undergraduate? Because you're already, as you said, editing the school paper. But did you already know that was going to be your future? I I was interested in journalism and I was interested in politics and I wasn't sure which way I was going to go and so I thought the law was a way that I could uh, have an income while I did my politics or journalism or whatever I ended up doing and that's and I, and I, and journalism as I said I started this magazine when I was in law school of my own and uh, uh, had an attraction for me, and it was a natural thing for me to do. Writing came easily to me, and uh, so here we were. So it was about 40-some years ago you, you, you decided to, uh, to write this book, and yeah. uh, before you started, did you have certain assumptions about the blacklist or maybe about your feeling about informing? Were there any prejudices you brought with you that maybe were dispelled? Yeah, I I believe that uh, the, the blacklist was an evil institution and that it 
was it carelessly lumped together communists, progressives, left-wing Democrats didn't make the distinctions that I subsequently discovered frequently it did make. Um, but I thought it was uh, a something that was harmful to our to the, what was politically possible in this country, and that it it wounded and stigmatized the left in a way that it didn't deserve, and uh, it was not it prevented open discussions and people couldn't get jobs that they should have been able to get, and. I admired people like Dalton Trumbo, whose the the technical details of whose life I did not know, but I knew that his public self and what he said and what he stood for, and uh, I I considered that the Rosenbergs were probably framed, and subsequently came to believe that Julius was a spy, and that Ethel wasn't. And in either case, they shouldn't have been executed. And you, you focus on the Hollywood blacklist, but it was part, of course, about multiple industries or areas that were under the scrutiny of the of HUAC or of uh, writers, of course, um, uh, outside Hollywood or academics, uh, etc. But you focused on on Hollywood. Was there a reason why you? Well, yeah, I, the Hollywood ten the so-called Hollywood 10 were very much in the news and I got interested in them Okay. and I started reporting on them and I wrote a story about them for the New York Times as I remember it and, and got to talk to them. Ah. In the course of that, I decided there was a book there that I wanted to write. So. Well, thank goodness you did. How was the access? Did How hard was it to get access to the Hollywood 10, well, you had it from the article, right? So did that open doors once you had them to talk to all sorts of other people? Because it's it, so thorough. It opened doors to talk to people like Albert Maltz and Dalton Trumbo and uh, John Howard Lawson. Um, but it probably closed some doors that I wasn't fully aware of at the time. So. Mm. Yeah, I could see that for sure. How would you know what you don't know, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, you brought up Albert Maltz and Dalton Trumbo, of course. The like it's it's their letters, their correspondences that encapsulate the uh the ultimate well, it's I guess that's more about forgiveness, not you know, this I but there the idea the the real sort of for me the dilemma is Who's the victim, right? Is everybody a victim? There is one common enemy that much we can agree on, right? Which was the committee. Yes, the the committee, Senator McCarthy, and then people like Roy Cohn, a whole bunch of folks who were attached to them. Sure. And uh, but but in you know. Trumbo and Maltz had their own disagreements and uh, there was a lot of tension between them. And I, I sort of agreed with Albert Maltz's analysis of everything, but well, I had kind more of admiration on. for Trumbo's attitude about life. He was a, 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 an enjoyer. So. I, right. And it, it, well, his ceiling is, don't, uh, it doesn't get you further by holding on to anger and holding on to resentment and the poison that you have to just make peace with it and get beyond it. And part of doing that is forgiveness, right? Ultimately. Uh, I think you're right. So, and I think, uh, but they were all, each one was different in his or her own way. And, uh, right. So I got to learn about. Did you have your? Did you? I mean, because I feel like uh, I I do understand this idea that like a Sterling Hayden or or Clifford Odets, Odets, Clifford Odets, right? Clifford, there were in a series of people that that informed, and and one of course could argue that they're they're victims, I suppose. But uh, you know, my thing I always go back to is is if I feel like it dilutes what all the sacrifices that those who refused to name names 
uh, made. Like, aren't we diluting their their true situation by calling informers victims? I'm not sure I caught the question, but... Well, I'm asking you, I guess, for... I, I guess it wasn't really well-framed as a question. I, I feel like that's my dilemma. I mean, I I know where I stand, and I guess I was wondering where, you know, if you if you had a strong feeling about it. I know Michael Mirapol said that he sides with uh, Maltz, you know, and that he's... Uh, doesn't uh he's doesn't forgive he or you know informers right you know it's as you know it's a very complicated situation i can't well you know and your book explores all the nuances of how it's you 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 go into detail because it is complicated and you give every side of the of this conversation i think you give every angle every perspective I came to admire the talent of Bud Schulberg, although I resented what he did and disagreed with his explanations of why he named names. His rationale. His rationale. And Kazan was obviously a talented guy, and I, but the satirical side of me said, yes, you will give him the uh, Oscar for his talent, but print on the back of it all the names of the people that he named. So that's funny. Which was which was funny, but it was the way I felt in a real way. It was it symbolized the way I felt about it. So right, uh, there was I forget who I was reading, but somebody kind of came up with some, one of the rationales for Kazan because he contributed his films had such strong messages, and he contributed so much that that might have been his mea culpa you know what i'm saying like in other words some people apologize sterling hayden walked around with a lot of a, with the burden of guilt right self-imposed guilt and um you know real and pub was public about it whereas kazan doubled down like his his memoir his biography autobiography he really doubled down he did, never never apologized for his choice he he and um yeah i i guess uh, um I'm losing my my point. I guess. I guess it, it's very nuanced. All of the choices that everybody made, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that whether they informed or not. I don't know. I, I uh, did you. So did you? Did you ultimately have a feeling about about it? About informers versus non-informers? Well, yeah. I, but it varied from person to person. I, okay. As a general proposition, I thought it was wrong to name names. And but in each case, you wanted to see what the person thought they were doing and why they did it, and you made different judgments about them. And uh, so, so I I identified with the psychological dilemmas that some of the people who name names faced, but I didn't agree with the way they came out when they did. <laughs> Name the names, and I admired those who put their careers and lives at risk by resisting. Did many of them talk to you? Uh, the people who name names? Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they did. Uh, and Schulberg talked to me at some mm-hmm. point, and, uh, uh, and Kazan talked to me on the street. And uh, I lived a couple of blocks from him, and uh, so I, I did get to, and I talked to their attorneys, Morton Gang and others. Yeah. Uh, so that was a for me. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. No, who played a, a complicated role in that era? Yeah, you're, you. Th- these are parts of the book which were brand new to me. Uh, the there was Martin Gang, who was an attorney, who was urging people to inform, essentially, right? Yes. And then there was also this the uh, the psychiatrist, which we think w- who was a was probably a uh, FBI. Not what do they call? Not a not a. Uh, he wasn't work directly for the FBI, right? But he was was being paid by the FBI to yeah. encourage his patients to inform, right? Right. This was all new to me. I didn't realize how many people there they, they reached in all in their work. But they're pretty central to the story. Yes, absolutely. 
So, uh, and there were these pressures from the society to to conform and to go along with the during the so-called McCarthyist years to 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 go along with the expectation that you had to cooperate with whoever was making the accusations so those who resisted it required something special from them at the time um i i talked to uh lee grant yes. did you ever talk do you ever talk to her i did talk to her at the time yes oh you did okay yeah um obviously she 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 got very fortunate in the latter part of her career but she she sacrificed her, her entire ingenue years by not naming names that's right. You know, when yeah. most actresses make their most uh, have their most success, she couldn't get work in in the film in movies. Uh, but she she said that Kazan had you know reached out to her a couple of times, but she wouldn't talk to him. And then much more recently, and I was very moved by her saying this because she said that it was only in the last years that she's learned to forgive, not to forget, but to forgive, and you know to make peace with it and to understand what he, I think she was the one who said. That you know, because of what he was able to make, you know, as a filmmaker, there was something there to, to you know, however you want to look at it, there was something there about what he was able to accomplish, you know, after he already had named names, the films that he had continued to make, which were groundbreaking, right? A face in the crowd. So the book came out about nineteen eighty eighty one. I'd have to look up exactly when it came out. <laughs> no, 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 don't don't worry about it. Uh, but at Warren, how was? Sorry, I'm now 89 years old, so my memory is not what it should be. So, have... well, you've been doing great, honestly. Given the questions and everything, I think you're doing great. And what was the uh, reception uh, when this came out? Do you do you have any memories of that period of time? Well, yeah, it it got some extraordinary positive reviews in places like the New York Times and, and liberal media and some negative reviews in National Review and other places oh. like that Bill Buckley. Yeah. But it won a National Book Award. So so the society embraced what I had to say in that sense. And uh, so that was important. Did it have an impact at the time? Did it change the way people talked about the blacklist years or informing? Uh, I, you know, you'd have to get that from other people. Yeah. From, from I, I couldn't see a one-on-one impact in that way, although there were people who said very kind things to me who had gone through the experience both ways, so... Yeah, I mean, still today, people ask, like, if you're reading about or if you're talking about that subject, the Hollywood blacklist, people still ask, hey, did you read Victor Navasky's book, Naming Names? It comes up. So it's... Yeah. Well, I still hear from people about that. And I hear the book sells and it goes on. So I don't know what the numbers are or anything like that. But it, it, it has an afterlife. So... It really does, because, you know, it's it keeps coming back, right? We're, we're in this very dangerous period of time again, which yes. uh, I feel like we're in this proto-fascist time. It's, we're in a very, I think, very delicate moment with uh, democracy is concerned. Yes, a lot of people analogize the Trump years to the blacklist years, so. Yeah, well, you mentioned Roy Cohen, so there's that too, right? Yes, well, I'm Trump relied on him and he made him uh, uh, someone who was not just his personal attorney, but he he in fact asked others, where is my Roy Cohn when I need him? So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's an unfortunate thing where we find ourselves. Yes. I don't quite understand why so many people uh, seem not to have really valued democracy or take it for granted have any feelings or thoughts about it? Like, how is there so many people that 
are no i think that's the big question of how why do so many people accept the big lie and uh all of the hate imagery and feelings that go with it and the numbers are very disturbing because they're in the 30s or in the republican party higher than that and people not objecting to that as if they haven't learned the lessons of the McCarthy years. So. Hmm. Is it too simplistic just to say it's racism or is that? I think it is because there's more than just racism. There's, there's, there's racism and some of, some of it, but, uh, there's hatred of white people as well as assumptions about people of color. Um, are you in touch with any of the families still of those who have or have not made names? I mean, are that come from the book or yeah. like the, the uh, Mostels or, or uh, anyone else like that? Or I'm in touch with Kate Lardner. She stays in touch. Oh. She's Ring's daughter and yeah, sure. his brother originally was was adopted by Ring and, and we're in touch. And, uh, I see her whenever I can. So, well, that's that's terrific. Well, I mean, honestly, it's it's an overwhelming subject, but it's one that's got captured my attention recently. Maybe because of of where we find ourselves, I'm not sure. But I reminded that I'm going to I put down to get a copy of the Sterling Hayden memoir because I've never read that. Right. But uh, um, I'm I am reading Michael's book finally, which is just heart heart wrenching stuff. It's a uh, the book he did, uh, you know, with his parents' letters, and um, well, I should read that. Yeah, yeah, we are your sons. Yeah, yeah I want to read that. I've read the recent biography Ethel. of Ethel. Yeah, that came out just recently. Yes. How is that? I think it's very good. It it it's a direct correction to the false way that she is remembered. So, in terms of like uh, the subject of exoneration or. Beyond well, that. Well, it's not an exoneration. It's a portrait of her, although it's an exoneration if you believe that she was guilty and deserved the chair. Uh, but it's a thoughtful description of where she was coming from. And you see the betrayals all around her. Green Glass, her brother, and others. Uh, what they did to her and her mother, who separated herself from her. It's it's a, a very sad tale. So, well, it says a lot about Abel and uh, Anne Mirapol that that, yes. those, that those boys came out to be such strong strong people. Yes, yes they're extraordinary. I, I mean, oh, no, there's the odds were not good. Michael, mm -hmm. it seems to me, I agree with everything I read that, about what he had to say about it. I don't know. He's, with Robert, who was very critical of my friend, the Yale doctor, of, for his own... Oh, for Daniel? Daniel. Uh, but even Robbie was, Robert was thoughtful in his criticism. So. You know that they attended the summer camp that I attended. Which is that? It was called Camp Thoreau. Uh, and it, it was sort of a, a, a child of Camp Woodland and Ochica, these, these, you know, and, and the uh, Lincoln Farm, these summer camps. Right. I went to one camp, Tony, which had a whole bunch of lefties going there. So. Yeah. Well, by the time I got there, it was already the 70s. So the, it was a very different, we were pretty, much, much different life for kids by the 70s in terms of coming out of Watergate and um, the Vietnam War and all that. So life was a lot, you know, it was, it was there was, Less intense, although, you know, right. depending, I guess, how you were raised. But anyway, I, I just want to thank you so much. I, I, if I have more questions, I'll, I'll bother you some well, other time. Thank about, you. It's good to talk to you, and I appreciate your interest and your thoughtful. Well, sure. About it, so. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, if I get your way, I'll let you know. Cause, um, Absolutely. I, was in the, I went right by you. I was on the way to uh, Pittsfield last weekend. Well, traveling, I was having a birthday celebration, as it were, with that in quotes. 
But anyway, by all means, feel free to stop by. <laughs> all right. Okay. Thank yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. I'll talk. All right. Take care. It's raining very hard out here. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here it's the sun is out. I'm not that far, so. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Okay. By the way. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. We'll be back, of course, in uh, about a week from now with yet another episode of the podcast. Remember, all these conversations and more are available on the FilmWax Radio YouTube channel. That's uh, youtube.com slash Radio. Please remember our Patreon. You can uh, subscribe to that at patreon.com slash Radio and, and engage with us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can sign up for our newsletter, which I don't send out more than maybe a few times a year. Go to filmwaxradio.com, and there is a, a field which you can uh, add your email. And, of course, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and a Stitcher, where you can leave comments and reviews. We ask you to do that. But we're also on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. So very easy to find the show and engage with us. Until next time, please do take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Bye.